I, if you look at all the Quranic verses that talk about the union between a man and a woman, they're actually very beautiful, very sacred relationship based on compassion, based on security, based on love. So where does this concept of uh, well, sexual coercion come in is beyond me. In this podcast, we step into the world of perhaps the most undeniably important aspect of a woman in an Islamic society, yet intentionally denied her rights. Momina, who has been on Dhani before, takes us uh, through a very dark and depressing a situation of the legal system where women and her rights are concerned. She highlights the gender differences. She highlights the Quranic sayings and she brings to us the sad and dismal state of our jurisdiction. If you like this podcast, please share it with your family and friends. And thank you for listening. Momina, welcome back on Dhani. Thank you so much. It feels good to be back, Sadia. Thank you for having me again. Uh, my friend, I uh, we are today touching upon a, a sort of a, a very, very serious, uh, tabooed, uh, but absolutely essential uh, topic. Um, and, and for that, uh, I, I just thought that you would be probably the best person to shed light, give us some guidance, explain to us what really is happening uh, on the table and what's happening under the table. So um, to begin with, uh, marital rape. So that's, uh, and I think this this entire conversation will probably be revolving around these two questions. One, this, as I just asked you, and the other one as to what uh, the Sharia has to say about it. What kind of an implementation is there, if at all? What kind of awareness implementation is there? So, I mean, please take take the center stage and, and, and start. Thank you, Sadia. This is, you're very right, this is a very uh, sort of touchy topic and most people will choose to stay away from it. And um, primarily, whenever we talk about whenever we talk about the Sharia, uh, there are very few people who are willing to stick their neck out and actually say certain things out loud. Uh, all around the world, the concept of marital rape it, marital rape being criminalized is fairly recent. Even in the United Kingdom, marital rape was not considered a crime until 1990. So even in a you know, developed country mm-hmm. like the United Kingdom, uh, the, the criminal law did not recognize marital rape as an offense. And this is, you know, this was this uh, phenomenal case called R versus R, which pretty much changed the law in accordance to the changing lifestyles and the needs of society at that time. 
Now in Pakistan, things are a little more complicated. Now, I'll start by saying that for Sharia, the Quran is the primary and most authoritative source of Islamic law. Mm. All Pakistani laws are either expressly or tacitly in line with Quranic injunctions. Mm. Uh, whenever we talk about marital rape, we're going to always come to the case of Abdul Qadir versus Salima, which was 1886. And Justice Mahmood at the time basically gave a judgment which, uh, where he spoke about a Pakistani Muslim wife's duties under Islamic law. And he explicitly stated that the nikah contracted imposed submission on the wife whenever summoned to the bed and conferred on the husband the power of correction whenever she was disobedient or rebellious. Now, if you look at the wording, oh dear. and this was essentially law, mm. uh, so, you know, saying no amounted to either rebellion or being disobedient. Mm. So, 18, so this started in 1886. Mm. And this was later sort of um, when the Hadood Ordinance in 1979 came into existence, that was the first time that... Uh, rape or Zinabil Jabbar as it is called in Pakistan um, was criminalized with very strict dire consequences. So almost so after second, 90 years. Yes, yes. <laughs> Unbelievable. And until okay. then, you know, 1886 mm. law pretty much prevailed, right? Mm, mm, mm. So section 6 of the Hadood ordinance um, defined rape. And I will just briefly quote, and maybe a sure. word here or there, because this is not written down anywhere. I'm just talking off the top of my head. Rape was defined as sexual intercourse with a man or woman, as the case may be, to whom he or she is not validly married. So mm. when rape was actually defined in a law, it eliminated uh, marital rape entirely. Right. So there are various circumstances that are given when it is against the will of the victim, without the consent of the victim, etc., etc. But the definition explicitly lays down that sexual intercourse with a man or woman to whom he or she is not validly married, which takes marital rape completely outside the ambit of criminal law. Mm. Now, this language, uh, pretty much as you can tell, explicitly excluded marital rape. Yeah. And it was in 2006 when the Protection of Women Criminal Laws Amendment Act was enacted. It was in 2006 that the wording of rape was changed. And it now reads to say that a man is set to commit rape who has sexual intercourse with a woman. The wording who he or she is not validly married to has been removed. Mm. So implicitly, it seems to appear that marital rape is something that we tacitly recognize. And technically, on procedural law, it can fall within the, uh, you know, 
um, scope of rape. But since 2006, would you believe, and I checked um, the statistics day before yesterday, we do not have a single case of marital rape brought to the courts. So I went a little overboard in my research, actually. So I called up a few of my friends who work in government hospitals, etc. And I said that, you know, uh, you do know that marital rape is a crime. And each one of them turned around and said, really? And mm -hmm. so, you know, there are these doctors and they're like, but we have so many women who come in. And we, of course, talk about somebody's having, so somebody's having their sixth child and she cannot get her tubes tied. She's desperate and she's begging the doctor to have her tubes tied because she cannot prevent her husband from having sex with her. So at least she wants to exude some control over her body in terms of childbearing. And apparently you even need the husband's consent to be able to tie her tubes. And since oh, the husband doesn't God. agree, mm -hmm. the husband doesn't agree, so there is a woman who is going to keep on giving birth to children year after year, irrespective of her health, irrespective of her own uh, control over her own body, because we may, the, the law recognizes marital rape in some way or form, but there is nobody who has ever stepped up and actually brought a case of rape. Now, there's another distinction here, Sadia, which is that marital rape, as long as you are living with your husband, uh, is presumably unheard of. And it's not even something that we would talk about. The only times even in, uh, you know, the nobody's actually brought it to court, but where it is talked about is through periods of legal separation where the husband and wife have not divorced, but they're living separately. And when they're living separately at that point, uh, you know, rape would be considered marital rape. But again, there are no cases in court to date that I know of. So that is where we stand as far as marital rape is concerned on the books. Now, a rather dismal state. It's a very dismal state, actually. I mean, when you were quoting me, quoting these these uh, these laws, it, it almost seemed as if there is a, a strong intention to keep this as vague as possible. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I will 100% agree with you. And to be able to actually understand this a little better, we, uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to explore the concept of gender in Islamic legal thought, right? Sure. You see, the challenge that the concept of gender presents to the construction of an egalitarian Muslim family law is very confusing. We believe, there's no doubt in my mind, that justice and equality are intrinsic values in Islam, and I'm sure you'd agree. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that all our laws are interpreted in a manner that women are treated as second-class citizens. Correct. And they're also treated as second-class citizens in all Islamic jurisprudential texts. So equality has become 
inherent to concepts of justice in modern times, but it is still not reflected in any Muslim family laws or even mm -hmm. Muslim criminal laws. Right? Mm -hmm. Now, if you looked at all the rules revolving around marriage and its termination, uh, all of these are actually a means that legitimize the control and subjugation of women. Mm -hmm. yep. It is actually through these laws that control is institutionalized. Now, um, my argument is actually based on two thoughts. There is no unitary, no coherent concept of gender rights in Islamic legal thought. So if you were to ask anyone, if you were to ask, uh, if you were to base your interpretation on one tafsir or the other, the interpretation of how much or how many rights women have will vary. So there are a variety of conflicting concepts. Each mm -hmm. concept rests on a different theological, juristic uh, and social assumption. Mm -hmm. Each will rest on a different theory. All of these theories will, in all of them, you will notice a tension in uh, Islamic sacred text and the ethical egalitarianism as an essential part of its message. So if you think about it, it's actually the patriarchal context yeah. in which yeah. the message is being implemented and unfolded. Because sure. all Muslim family laws and criminal laws are essentially the products of socio-cultural assumptions and Correct. juristic reasoning about the nature of relationship between men and women, right? Mm. So the very concept of gender equality uh, presents Islamic legal thought with a challenge that Islamic legal thought has yet to meet. So I have a question here. Uh, as you said that, uh, you know, um, if at all there is some vague description in there, it is that if the the man, the husband and wife are separated and then there is a coercion or sort of a, a coercive sex and that uh, becomes uh, rape, marital rape. Right. My question here is that otherwise if the, if, if the couple are, are together and there is uh, there is non-consents from one party, from the woman, but there is coercion and there's force. So do we, what do we do with that? That's a very interesting question. And I've been thinking about that for years now because uh, since I've started therapy, uh, doing therapy, I have come across numerous women who complain of non-consensual sex mm. and their inability to do anything about it. Yeah. And at the same time, I've had many clients in the legal arena and in the psychological arena who all come and talk about, but Islam explicitly says that it is a woman's duty and a woman's job to you know, satisfy her husband's mm, sexual mm, desires. Mm, mm. Very easily, you know, you put that in the bracket and get away with it. Absolutely. And yeah. you know, so there are these famous three hadiths that are constantly quoted over and over again. One is that uh, Rasulullah sallallahu apparently said that the angels will not pardon the wife as long as the husband is angry at the wife rejecting his sexual advances or that God will remain angry with the woman for as long as she has 
chosen to keep her husband out of her bed. So there are these couple of hadiths that go around and they're quoted and misquoted. And it's very interesting because I, if you look at all the Quranic verses that talk about the union between a man and a woman, they're actually very beautiful, very sacred relationship based on compassion, based on security, based on love. So where does this concept of uh, well, sexual coercion come in is beyond me. There is a hadith that I uh, frequently um, quote to other people that Rasulullah said that if a woman does not want to suckle her baby, if she does not want to breastfeed her baby, her husband may not compel her to do so. Mm. And if he, and if she chooses to suckle the baby, he must compensate her for doing so. So on the one hand, there is, God is giving you so much control over your body that he's saying that you don't have to suckle your baby if it is against your will. Absolutely. How can the same God turn around and say that it's okay if you don't want to have sex, you will still be compelled to do so against your will? I totally agree. I, I, I totally agree. I mean, the, the God, the Allah, as he says, there is no even compulsion even to uh, for religion, even to follow your deen. If you, so coming from that creator, it is highly unlikely. And as you're saying, these hadiths are so quoted and misquoted and misconstrued and obviously all the time injected in situations which serves the man. But it's very funny, if you look at any uh, literature on marital rape or the concept of marital rape in Islam, you will not come, come across any literature that is written by a Muslim. Mm. There's lots of commentary done by other people who recognize that consent is essentially a very big part of our religion. Mm. Like everybody looks at Hazrat uh, Nuz. Uh, you know, story as pertaining to how Islam does not recognize homosexuality and how the entire uh, nation was wiped out because of homosexuality. It was actually not homosexuality. For me, the, even the first time that I read it, it's about lack of consent. It was about sodomy. It was about rape. It was not homosexuality. Homosexuality can or cannot be read into it. That's everybody's own interpretation. Sure. But at the, at the essence, it is about lack of consent. There were women who were sodomized. There were men who were sodomized. So there was a rape, but it was the culture of rape, mm -hmm. which was lack of consent, essentially. Mm -hmm. So consent seems to be a very important part of... Uh, a relationship between any two people. So how um, people really construe consent is that they look at it as being a contract. Mm -hmm. That a uh, marriage contract is essentially construed as a contract mm -hmm. uh, between two people. Mm -hmm. And the fact that a woman 
uh, enters into that contract by consenting to the contract she is consenting to uh, well the next maybe 40 decades 50 decades of sex so um, again every contract has a legal structure and you know you cannot really many have uh, al-ghazali for example draws the parallel between the status of a wife and that of a female slave okay mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and his very famous quote where which is again used everywhere is that he says that marriage is a kind of slavery because the wife is actually the slave to her husband now this is a very popular renowned muslim jurist mm -hmm. So he talks about the notion of ownership and one of the, the notion of ownership or as it is called in Islamic law, uh, tamlik. He says that tamlik underlies the basic concept of marriage which basically says that a woman's sexuality is a commodity of exchange. Mm -hmm. So with a marriage a woman comes under her husband's authority, protection, and the word that he adds is control. Oh dear. Okay. So, uh, it, marital rape was not the question in a particular legal case that I was aware yeah. of. Hmm. But it was very interesting. It, you know, it was one of the things that was talked about in the judgment. Mm -hmm. And the judge said something very interesting. He said that every marriage contract has some rights and some obligations. Some, uh, if some of those rights are breached, they come with legal sanctions. So if a husband doesn't provide for you, you have a legal remedy. Mm. Others come with moral sanctions. So if a husband rapes you, he will be judged according to him he will be judged in the court of God because a legal court is no place to determine whether sexual submission is something that is a prerequisite of the contract or not so, so essentially we're quite uh, 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 in the dark ages and there seems to be no support whatsoever i was just going to say that in uh, india pakistan and bangladesh uh, there are laws that allow suit uh, for restitution of conjugal rights which means that a husband can enforce his legal right of obedience, sexual obedience, through the courts. Oh, God. If that wasn't, you know, if the previous uh, jurisdiction wasn't enough, this is another sort of... If the wife is refusing to sleep with her uh, husband, he can actually go to court and get mm. restitution of conjugal rights. Mm. So it kind of, you know, makes consent or the identity of the person or the person, uh, you know, the concept go flying out of the window. Yeah, yeah. So, I, so I'm just, 
asking, is there any, any sort of support? You see, the thing is, one, because there is no recognition whatsoever. And as you're saying, uh, at least in the subcontinent, the the cultural construct is such that the woman has to sort of be patient and she has to be grateful and she has to. So all, you know, all that kind of whether it is violence, uh, emotional violence or or physical violence or whatever, it also goes in under that umbrella that you have to be quiet and you have to be, you know, you exhibit patience and it's all, you know, you drown yourself into that. Now, my question here is that if at all a woman is actually realizes that she, uh, her, her rights are being violated, her body is being violated, is there any support system at all where she can go Divorce. and... Right, Divorce. that's it. That's pretty much it. Mm. And uh, that too, also because uh, you, you do understand that even with divorce there is the right, the man has the right of talaq and the woman has the right to khula. So the right to talaq is uh, a unilateral right, which mm-hmm. he can just proclaim talaq and that is the end of the matter. Mm-hmm. And the right of khula is a bilateral agreement. So when the woman applies for khula, the husband has to agree to release her from the conjugal bond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's not just about, but the marital rape is, uh, you know, a few steps ahead. Mm. I don't even think in my lifetime we're going to ever really see anything come out of that. Mm. I mean, we're, we're talking about, uh, still talking, you know, shouting slogans like, Mera jism, meri marzi, my body, you know, uh, Women have very little control over their own bodies, whether it is sexually, whether it is in terms of determining how many children, when they can have children, anything. And the problem is that society accepts that. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Accepts it or just is in complete denial. But so that is the state of uh, say Pakistan, but is there any sort of anything else happening which one could sort of emulate, say in Turkey or Indonesia, or um, where we could just sort of understand and perhaps transfer that kind of a recognition over? So, uh, in, by the way, interestingly, even non-Islamic countries, there are non-Islamic countries which still do not recognize marital rape, which Mm -hmm. includes Japan, Poland, Kazakhstan, uh, because they just do not prosecute marital rape or recognize it. Mm -hmm. Recent countries that have criminalized marital rape include Turkey, which criminalized it in 2005, uh, Cambodia in 2005, Mauritius in 2007, Ghana, Malaysia, Thailand, mm. Tunisia, mm. Rwanda, and Jamaica. So these mm-hmm. are countries that have criminalized it in the last uh, 15 to 20 years. There are interestingly still some United States, uh, states in the United States, which do not criminalize marital rape. So while so, we so, hide... Sorry, sorry, go on. I was just going to say that while we may hide under the farce of 
okay, because it is Sharia, it is, you know, it's something untouchable, Islamic law, and this comes right from the Quran, which by the way, it really doesn't. Uh, there are still a lot of countries who can easily recognize a crime has been committed and choose not to. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So my question now is that though the countries that do recognize it, how do they define it? They have defined it as there is no distinction between marital rape and rape. It is the lack of consent. And mm. that can be between, uh, so that is how you, they, it started out by them recognizing day trip that just because you're in a car or you're at, you know, at a particular place does not mean you consented to have sex, right? So uh, it started out from recognizing date rape and eventually marital rape. So they're saying there was a judgment, the earliest one, which was in Turkey in 2004, which actually led to the change of the law, was um, a judgment where uh, you know the defense lawyer actually said that under Muslim law, when a woman consents to marriage, she consents to sexual intercourse for all times to come. And the judge very clinically and authoritatively ruled that that cannot be the case. Consent cannot be for anything for all times to come. Mm -hmm. So consent has to be in the moment. And it, Turkey actually criminalized marital rape by recognizing that there is no defense for rape, whether it is in a marriage or outside. Mm -hmm. I do not know how effective it is, very honestly, because while I know that marital rape is criminalized in these countries, I do not honestly know how many cases there are uh, in the category of marital rape in these uh, jurisdictions. But yes, in Pakistan, none exist. Oh, God, I don't know what to say, really. But uh, you're right, you know, even if it is sort of criminalized, it is, uh, it'll be interesting to note how many women actually uh, can free themselves from these cultural shackles and what will people say and how do I sort of rise up and say this to actually come out and finally admit of how... Uh, they have been assaulted and repeatedly assaulted under this name of contract. Oh dear. Absolutely. And Turkey basically abandoned FIC and replaced it with, you know, what they call Western-inspired courts, right? Mm -hmm. So the problem is that, um, again, patriarchy just really needs to be separated from Islam's sacred texts and the Sharia. Everyone seems to agree that Islam honors women's rights. Mm -hmm. And they agree that justice and fairness are integral to the Sharia. Mm -hmm. The problem is that we just all disagree on what these rights are. We disagree on what actually constitutes justice for women. And how do you realize the rights of women within an Islamic framework. Mm -hmm. So, you know, different jurisprudential theories and different legal systems need to be understood in their cultural, 
political and social contexts in sure. which they operate. Sure. And it is, and that is where honestly the problem lies. Mm. It is patriarchy which is eating away the very fabric of society. Do we have hope? Well, I, I'm a very optimistic person. And in the last uh, 15 to 20 years, um, I think, I mean, I think in the year 2000, I remember I went to court and I wanted, my client was a woman who wanted to have custody of her child. And it became a battle between the rights of a father and the rights of a mother. And the interest of the child was nowhere to be seen. Mm. Nobody was actually interested in the environment or, you know, the, the upbringing of the child. Sure. So that was in the year 2000. And in 2015, I was again in court for a similar case where the entire case revolved around the beneficial interest of the minor. So I've seen that happen. Mm. I've seen that change in my lifetime. Mm. So I'm hoping that there are going to be some forward-looking, uh, open-minded judges, some open-minded parliamentarians who are going to realize that it is not about, uh, you know, you're defeating the purpose of the Quran, really, which talks about an egalitarian society. You're defeating the purpose of the Quran by interpreting it in the patriarchal mindset that you are interpreting it in. So yes, I do have hope. And um, I think I, I would like to close uh, uh, the podcast with uh, one of the posts that you had on your uh, social media, which I'm just reading off from there, which said that practice empathy like Rasulullah by listening, being non-judgmental, understanding, imagine, as in being in their shoes, respond paraphrasing and reflecting, being attentive with your body. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you had put that in your uh, in your social media uh, post, that I, I think if we were only to follow these for ourselves and for others, uh, the changes that you uh, are talking about uh, might just happen um, sooner rather than later. Inshallah, inshallah, I am hopeful that there are a lot of people out there who are, and I believe that all human beings are generally good. It is just the selfless part that they need to work on. But yes, the Quran and the Sunnah, if we were only to follow what they explicitly lay down, all our lives would become so much easier. Mm. And also possibly reflect on our own as well. Of course, follow uh, what the scholars are seeing. But sometimes, as you're seeing, we're so misled by some of the scholars. It just tarnishes the entire ethos of the religion, of the deen, for all times to come. Oh, for all times to come. And it's very interesting that I think I've uh, said this to you before, that when I was looking for somebody to teach my daughter the Quran, I kept looking for somebody who actually understood it. So every time that I would ask somebody to come in, 
and asked them where, where he learned the Quran from, the answer I usually got was from my father, who learned it from his father, or who learned it from his father. And there were very few people that I actually came across who knew what the Quran actually said. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, Hamari argument is always that the Quran, we don't understand the Quran because Arabic is not our first language. Mm-hmm. Right? Quran is not a book that you can understand by mere linguistics. Sure. Which is just one tool. You know, yeah. there are many other tools yeah. which are needed. I mean, even the Sahaba Ikram, they needed tafsir. There were people who knew Arabic as a first language and many of them were poets. So even they needed tafsir. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the most beautiful ways in which our Prophet sort of uh, explained the Quran was um, that he said that for understanding the Quran, you need to look within the Quran itself. Mm-hmm. So what we do is that we take things out of context. Yeah, yeah. So to truly understand the Quran, we need to look for explanations within the Quran. Like I said, when God is talking about when he gives so much importance to consent or when he gives so much importance and talks about love and compassion, uh, I believe he calls spouses libas or garment for each other, mm-hmm. which means there is this you know, intimacy and there is this concept of protection. Yeah, and there's a dignity and there's grace in the relationship. Right. So, yeah. I mean, how, where does non-consensual, uh, non-consensual sex or, you know, violence or force, how, how do they become integrated into the relationship mm-hmm. that God talks about so beautifully? Totally agree. But that is where my confusion lies. No, as you said, it's, it's, you know, it, there is confusion. I think there is clarity. However, uh there is denial there is uh, a, a, an intentional denial to to recognize that that's it Absolutely. and 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 again again is the, the the lens of uh, as you said the lens of uh, patriarchy is is too strong that's that's what's going I just, on i'd just like to say one more thing that sure. we all believe that uh like you know as muslims as as a muslim i believe that my God is infinite. So I have an infinite God, and I think all Muslims would agree with that. So his word is the Quran. And our Prophet said, on this day we have perfected for you your religion. So God sent us a book for all times to come. So how can the word of an infinite God be finite? Brilliant. In essence, where we're going wrong. We need to interpret the Quran in light of what is happening today. Mm -mm, mm -mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. How wonderful. How wonderful. Uh, Thank you, Momina. Thank you. Uh, You know, it's, uh, we've been, we worry, we, we think, we, we reflect. Sometimes we don't find these answers. And uh, sensitive topics like these uh, just sort of nowhere to be found. Thank you for taking your time out and, and sharing uh, all of this knowledge with us. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for having me, Sadia. It was my pleasure. Thank you, and you take care.